that when a leader moves on from a particular institution, leadership transitions are never easy. Uh, obviously, we're going to miss uh, Vanessa, uh, and I'll say in a minute something of, of what we're going to miss uh, of Vanessa. This morning at nine o'clock, she led us in an a cappella uh, Gloria, which was quite remarkable. I wouldn't have been brave enough to try that, but um, we went there and we came back. It was okay. Um, but there's been so much that, that God has used um, Vanessa and Cameron to, to bless us with over the last four years, but it will leave a hole um, a Vanessa-shaped hole um, amongst us. And we'll look for a new associate rector, and that process has already begun. But it's right that we take some time to say thank you uh, to Vanessa and to honor uh, what she's brought to us and to pray for her and to pray for Walthamstow uh, as they prepare to receive her as their next rector. Um, but any organization, when a leader moves on, that transition, the handing of the baton from one person to another, can be very tricky. Uh, the news this week has been full of FIFA and the leadership transition that many of us wanted but didn't actually see uh, this week as Seth Blatter was re-elected again uh, to be president of FIFA. Uh, companies and organizations and charities and even churches when they haven't got a leadership succession plan in mind, struggle for a bit. So at the moment, people are debating who should lead the Scottish Labour Party, who should lead the UK Labour Party, who should lead the Liberal Democrat Party, and who should lead UKIP, even though they thought they might be in a leadership election, but then it transpired they weren't going to be in a leadership election. In April 2013, uh, the USA Today money section reported that shares in Apple had fallen dramatically, uh, despite us buying iPhones and iPads and iMacs and iWatches and iEverything else, um, despite being one of the, the biggest companies in the world and the most recognizable brands, the share price in Apple was down 44%. And get this. $291.2 billion had been wiped off the shareholders' wealth. $291.2 billion. That's a lot of money. Um, and the cause was put down very simply to the death two years before of Apple's founder, Steve Jobs. He died, and in those intervening two years, there'd been uncertainty as to who was going to take over from him. There'd been uncertainty as to whether Apple could continue to develop and be as popular as it had been in the past. Any firm, any organization, any cause that doesn't have a succession plan in mind when a leader moves on is going to be in trouble. Well, contrast that with what happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus. In our sermon series, we're going through the events and beliefs of the creed. Uh, if you remember, basically it's the early church in the third and fourth century trying to come to terms with and trying to understand how God could be up there, down here, in Jesus, and then in them when Jesus had gone back into heaven. And that, in essence, is what the creeds are all about. They're trying to understand how can God be up there, down here, in him, in you, in me, and out there at the same time. 
And that's basically what it comes down to. The whole of the creeds, the whole of the theology of the creeds, the whole of 400 years of church history comes down to that in very simple terms. And today we're looking at the events of the Ascension. We had to jump ahead uh, last Sunday because it was Pentecost Sunday, and so we jumped ahead to the coming of the Holy Spirit. But what preceded the coming of the Holy Spirit was the Ascension. And the context was this. Just 50 days after the events of that first Good Friday, his followers were transformed into a group of women, men and women, as we looked at last week, that within 50 years changed the face of the known world. And central to that transformation was the ascension of Jesus. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus obviously were important. They were key. They were vital. But the ascension of Jesus was also pivotal. And over the last two or three decades, the ascension of Jesus has become less important. When I was at secondary school sometime in the last millennium, um, we actually had a holiday for Ascension Day. It was a public holiday. It was then moved to the May bank holiday, and Ascension Day just became an ordinary day. But Ascension Day was a public holiday, along with Christmas and Easter and Pentecost. It was seen as one of the great feasts and festivals of the church, but also something that was marked in public life. Well, here we are 30 years later, at least, and it is no longer a public holiday. But it was important just two weeks ago now that 20 of us stood on a Baltic Carlton Hill at 7 a.m. in the morning as we celebrated the Ascension. And it was Vanessa's idea. It's one of the things that Vanessa will leave with us is early morning Baltic communions. And we stood on Carlton Hill at 7 a.m. in the morning and thought, whose bright idea was this to be up Carlton Hill at 7 o'clock in the morning where it's about minus Three, despite the fact that it's May, and we are celebrating the remembering the Ascension, and we celebrated the Ascension, and we remembered the Ascension, and we gave thanks for the Ascension, and we gave thanks that next year we will not be up Carlton Hill at seven o'clock in the morning. We will have a communion service later in the day, in the inside, when it's warm, and we will pray for the parishioners of Walthamstow, who will be there at six o'clock in the morning, having a communion service with Vanessa, celebrating the Ascension. God bless you. That's one of the things that Vanessa has brought to us and that we will miss in so many ways. But the ascension is hugely important because the ascension triggered the coming of the Holy Spirit and the ascension is hugely important because of what it signified about Jesus and also what it signifies about the church. And if you think about it, it was perhaps the perfect church holiday. Because the world doesn't want it. The world wants Christmas and the world wants Easter. It's not that fussed about Pentecost, but it certainly isn't minded to celebrate the Ascension. Christmas and Easter can be about Father Christmas and materialism and John Lewis adverts and chocolate and the Easter bunny. But in the words of Eugene Peterson, the world hasn't the foggiest notion what to do with someone flying out. 
The world hasn't the foggiest notion what to do with someone flying out. And so last week we celebrated the coming of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, but ten days before, the ascension had made the coming of the Holy Spirit possible, but also revealed some deeply significant truths about Jesus. And the context was this. It had been 40 days since the first Easter day, 40 days in which Jesus had appeared and disappeared to his disciples. On one occasion, we're told he appeared to 500 people at once. On another, he appeared to a few of the disciples back in Galilee by, on the shore, and he cooked them breakfast as they were coming back from a fishing trip, and he forgave Simon Peter, and he reinstated Simon Peter. And what we're told happened during this time, verse 3 of Acts chapter 1, is that during this time, Jesus taught them again about the kingdom of God. After his suffering, verse 3, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. He told them to wait in Jerusalem and to wait for the Holy Spirit. Hence their question that we read about in verse 6 that was a perfectly logical one. The Holy Spirit was coming, and therefore they ask in verse 6, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In their mind, it was logical. If the Holy Spirit was going to come, then the kingdom was going to come. If the Spirit of God was going to descend, the kingdom of God was going to descend. But their question also shows that they have neither understood the nature of the kingdom nor have they understood the nature of the Spirit. John Stott points out that the verb, the noun, and the adverb reveal everything that was wrong in the disciples' understanding. So when they asked restore, and use that word, the verb restore, it shows that they thought the kingdom was a political one. When they used the noun Israel, it shows that they thought it was a national kingdom. And when they use the adverb, at this time, it shows that they thought it was about to happen immediately. Apart from that, they were absolutely correct in what they had sussed about the Holy Spirit and about the kingdom. But the kingdom of God was not and is not to be found on any map. It isn't restricted to one nation. It's international. And it didn't come at one time. It spreads gradually, life by life by life, by life, by life. Now, the reply that Jesus gave them was one that's been ignored by millions of Christians over the past 2,000 years, as we'll see in a minute. Verse 7, Jesus says to them very clearly, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Elsewhere, Jesus himself said that not even he knew the time or the date or the place of his return. And about 10, 12 years ago, I was speaking at the Keswick Convention. Um, somehow they let me in. And um, I actually said those words. Jesus himself said that he did not know the time or the date or the place when he would return. Because he actually says that in Luke's Gospel. And at the end, there were two or three people waiting for me by the stage after I'd finished the talk. 
And one by one, they came and said, we think you made a mistake. And I said, probably. Tell me what it was this time. And they said, you said that Jesus said that he did not know the time or the date or the place when he would return. And I said, yes. And they said, why did you say that? I said, because Jesus said it. <laughs> and they looked at me and said, no, he didn't. And I said, yes, he did. And they said, no, he didn't. I said, yes, he did. And they said, where did he say it? So I took them to Luke's gospel and showed them. And they said, oh, he did. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know he did. That's why I said it. But we'll see why that's important in a few minutes' time. Because it hasn't stopped many Christians getting obsessed with trying to predict where and when and how Jesus would return. But Jesus was very clear. He did not know. He might know now, but he hasn't told us. And it's not down to us to worry about it. But then comes this remarkable event. Jesus ascends in front of the disciples on the Mount of Olives. Uh, there's one account at the end of Luke's Gospel, and there's one account here at the beginning of Luke's second book, the Acts of the Apostles. There are some minor differences, but there are four or five things that are in common. In, in Luke's Gospel, he has Jesus rising and, and blessing his disciples. Um, in the Acts of the Apostle, Luke concentrates on the words that Jesus speaks to his followers. But he's there on the Mount of Olives, and he's taken up before their very eyes into a cloud. And you see, just like the resurrection, the ascension is something that happens to Jesus. It's not something that he does. Jesus did not rise from the dead. He was raised from the dead. And Jesus did not, in some ways, ascend. He was ascended into heaven. Both were acts of the Father. And the question is, why? Why, when Jesus was constantly coming and going, appearing and disappearing, why does this event occur in the way that it does? Well, three or four things quickly. Firstly, it tells the disciples that they have to let Jesus go. Verse 11, men of Galilee, the angels say, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. What happened here was, was something significant and something different and final about this occasion when Jesus leaves them for the last time. Before, Jesus comes and goes. So, he appears in the upper room, even though the doors are locked. He appears uh, with them um, on the shore of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. He appears uh, by them on the roadside uh, going to Emmaus. And then as soon as they recognize who he is, as he breaks the bread, he disappears. So he's a bit like a member of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. He, he suddenly appears and disappears. He's not beamed up. He just literally appears and then disappears, comes and goes, appears, disappears. He's there one minute, he's gone the next. They can't predict where he's going to come, where he's going to turn up. He's just there, and then he's gone. 
This is different. This is his final departure. And that's signified by the angels who were there, these two men dressed in white. And again, if you think about it, angels had been there at his birth. Angels were there at his resurrection. And now angels are there at his ascension. And it signifies to the disciples that this phase of Jesus' ministry has come to an end. But secondly, it also tells the disciples something about Jesus. Verse 9, after Jesus said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They're up on the Mount of Olives. Jesus is taken up from them into a cloud. Now, when clouds and mountains occur together in the Bible, something significant is happening. It's, it's trickier for those of us who live in Scotland because to us, clouds and mountains just go together. Normally at the same time, you, you climb a Monroe, you get to the top, and suddenly that is when the cloud descends and you can't see anything at all. So clouds and mountains in our thinking just sort of go together. In the Bible, clouds and mountains occur together at times of great significance. So whether it's Moses or on Mount Sinai or Jesus at the Transfiguration or here at the Ascension, God is doing something. Tim Keller writes the following about the Ascension. If Jesus merely wanted to return to the Father, he could have just vanished. There were other times when he vanished immediately out of sight, for example, Emmaus. But instead, at the ascension, Jesus literally rises up into the clouds and disappears into the distance of heaven. Why did he do it that way? You know, there was no guidebook. This is how ascensions happen. There was nothing actually predicted in the Old Testament. So why did it happen in this particular way? Keller speculates. We can only speculate but it may have been for the same reason that we have a coronation ceremony. That's what's occurring as Jesus ascends into heaven. His leaving of the disciples is different to signify that this is significant and this is final, but also something memorable and deeply significant is happening, not just on earth, but also in heaven. What we see is Jesus, as it were, leaving the space-time continuum without the need for a TARDIS. He leaves the space-time continuum. Up to now, for 33 years, Jesus has been restricted to being in one place at one time. But now he ascends into the heavens, and from now on, everything that Jesus does has a cosmic scope. And as Jesus returns up into heaven, in the creed, what we say is, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now that phrase is deeply significant. Because the places at the right and the left hand of somebody in the ancient world were deeply significant. The left was a place of intimacy. That's why John sits on Jesus' left at the Last Supper. 
the right is the place of power. At the right hand is the place of power. So for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of the Father, as we'll see next week, is deeply significant. Jesus now is seated at the right hand of the Father with angels, authorities, and powers underneath him. Jesus is now our advocate with the Father. Jesus is now there to pray for us, to intercede with us, with God the Father on our behalf. Jesus from now on is incredibly powerful as well as incredibly personal. And we'll go into that in more depth next week. But as Tim Keller puts it, Jesus ascended, not levitated, So when God the Father looks at you, he sees the ascended Jesus. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That when God the Father looks at you or me, he looks at us through the prism of the ascended, risen, glorified Jesus. Jesus intercedes on our behalf with the Father. But God the Father, when he looks at us, looks at us through the ascended, risen Jesus. So it tells the disciples they've got to let Jesus go. It tells the disciples something about Jesus. But also it tells the disciples, verse 11, that Jesus will return. The angels say, this same Jesus will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. Now what is that saying and what is that not saying? What it's not saying is that the second coming of Jesus will simply be the ascension played backwards. It's not as though God hits rewind and the events of the ascension simply are replayed backwards. That's not what is being said by the angels. The second coming will be similar in some ways. His coming will be in person and his second coming will be visible and his second coming will be glorious, just in the same way as the ascension. But there will also be some significant differences. You see, Jesus ascended in front of 12, 20 people. When Jesus returns, it will not be a private event. It will not be by invitation only. It will not be to a small group of people. Jesus himself said, every eye will see, every ear will hear. Paul says in Philippians, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. John writes in Revelation 1 verse 7 that every eye will see him. Jesus himself speaks about his second coming being like a thief in the night. It will be like lightning going from the east to the west. So the second coming of Jesus will be different in that way. It will be a global event. It will be a cosmic event. It will not be a private event. It will not be a small group only event. Neither will the second coming of Jesus be something that Jesus does alone. Jesus alone ascends into heaven. We're told again and again in the New Testament that when Jesus returns, he will be accompanied by angels and all those who have died in the faith. And unlike the ascension, it will not be in one place or one time. 
It will be something that everybody around the world sees at the same time. Nobody will be in any doubt. You know, you won't come to church the next Sunday and think, I think the second coming may have happened, did it? I think, I'm not sure. Something, maybe it was a big bang on Tuesday, but I'm not sure what it was. It won't be like that. Now, that hasn't prevented millions, well, thousands at least, and being spent by Christians reserving graves by the Mount of Olives. Because they think that somehow, because of the words here, Jesus will return at the Mount of Olives. Neither has it prevented millions of dollars being spent by Christian television stations getting studios just by the Mount of Olives so that they will have the exclusive shot of the second coming as Jesus returns. Live on God TV, exclusive to us only. When the second coming of Jesus occurs, it will not be a strap line that goes along the bottom of our TV saying, breaking news, we think Jesus of Nazareth may have returned in glory at the Mount of Olives. It will not be like that. Despite millions of Christians around the world and down the last 2,000 years getting trapped into worrying about it and, and trying to literally buy the best seats so that they can be amongst the first resurrected when Jesus comes back to the Mount of Olives. That is not what this verse is all about. The second coming of Jesus will be a global cosmic event. And remember, Jesus didn't know when it was going to happen. He didn't know where, and he didn't know when. And P.S., he hasn't told us. And our only response is to not to worry about it. Jesus says it's not for you to worry about the time or date set by the Father. Now, it may well be that over the last 2,000 years, the Father has told Jesus when he's going to come back. But he hasn't told us. So it's not our concern to worry where it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. Our concern is simply to recognize that one day it will happen. But when it happens, it will be the end of space and time and history as we know it. And a whole series of events will unfold, but it will not be a breaking news story, and it will not be exclusive to God TV. But fourthly and finally, the ascension also tells the disciples to get on and do the job that they have been given. Do you see what the angels say in verse 11? Men of Galilee... The women obviously are let off. They're more sensible. They know what's going on. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking at the sky? Now, over the past 2,000 years, particularly in medieval um, art, they have tried to depict this in the best possible light. So you have the clouds, and you have the feet of Jesus, and you have the disciples, the apostles, sort of beatifically sort of kneeling at the feet of Jesus as he ascends into heaven. But when it comes down to it, basically what you've got are three things. You've got a cloud. You've got the feet of Jesus disappearing into the cloud. And you've got 12 blokes underneath going... And that's what they're doing. And that's why the angels say, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking intently into the sky? 
Now, how are the disciples like us in that regard? What was about to unfold was the coming of the Holy Spirit. After the ascension of Jesus, with the coming of the Holy Spirit, the early church and we are equipped to do what Jesus has told them to do, to do the things that Jesus did, to care for the sick, to care for the poor, to tell people that God loves them unconditionally, that because of the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they can know the forgiveness, the love and acceptance of God the Father. And that with the ascension, then is given the Holy Spirit that we might have the power and the strength and the equipment to be the church that God, Jesus, calls the church to do and be. But it is so tempting, just like the disciples, to want to remain in a spiritual moment. Or perhaps to be nostalgic for a time when things were different. That's what's going on with the disciples. They have literally seen Jesus ascend into heaven. Only three of them were there at the transfiguration. So for the rest of them, this is something new. So they're transfixed in the moment. But they can't leave the moment. Maybe they're nostalgic for all the the past three years and all that's, that's happened So they're just standing there looking up into the sky. And the angel has to say, guys, come on, why are you standing here looking into the sky? Go back into Jerusalem, do what Jesus tells you, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then when the Holy Spirit comes, get on with the job that Jesus has given the church to do. The angels don't allow the disciples, the angels don't allow us, to get stuck. Either to get stuck or to become distracted. Distracted on wanting to retain the feeling of a spiritual moment. Let's sing that song one more time. I wish God could be as close to me during the week as he feels on a Sunday. I want to get that feeling back. Or I want to be nostalgic for a time when I felt closer to God or or when God was more active in my life or or there was just more going on with God or I I wish this church could be like it was. That's what's going on in the life of the disciples. I wish it could be a time when, you know, when Jesus was with us. I wish there could be a time when Vanessa was with us because she's close to Jesus. One or two differences, but she's close to Jesus. It's very easy to get distracted. It's very easy to get stuck. And the angels don't allow the disciples to do that. And neither do they allow us to get stuck either. As somebody has said, the early church are to be witnesses, not stargazers. They've been told to go to the ends of the earth, but they were stuck gazing into the sky. The ascension does not allow us to remain nostalgic for the past or to get stuck in a spiritual experience. Very simply, the ascension reminds us of three or four things. The ascension reminds us that Jesus' earthly ministry has come to an end. It reminds us that he is now the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The ascension is his coronation ceremony. 
The ascension reminds us that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he is our advocate. He intercedes for us with the Father. It reminds us that just as he is gone, so he will return. But the ascension also reminds us that with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are now to get on with the job that Jesus gave to the church. In the words of Tom Wright, the former Bishop of Durham, to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief, to give up the struggle to be God and with it the inevitable despair at our constant failure, and to enjoy our status as creatures, image-bearing creatures, but creatures nonetheless. Vanessa.